Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the Free Movement um, Immigration Update podcast. This month we're covering January 2020. My name is Colin Yeo. I'm joined by CJ McKinney, my colleague. If you'd like to claim CPD for listening to this podcast and reading the material, then head over to freemovements.org.uk slash training and sign up as a member. Right, we've got um, a number of different cases. Um, we're going to cover some asylum stuff. We've got some points-based material to cover little bit of Brexit stuff just on appeal rights, a um, couple of cases on detention, um, and some materials on fascinating subject of tax discrepancies and accountants. Um, we're finishing off with a bit on Article 3 and medical treatment, and then a few procedural cases. Okay, CJ, over to you. Yes, the case of the month is a country guidance judgment on Iraq. A country guidance case, as, as you all know well, Colin, is the definitive take from the courts about the risk in a particular country and is, is obviously very important for asylum seekers from that country. The new case is called SMO, KSP and IM, Article 15C, Identity Documents Iraq, CG, 2019, UK, UT 400, IAC. And it replaces all previous country guidance on Iraq in one huge decision. So what would you say, Connor, the main differences between the previous country guidance on Iraq and what we have now, if, if you can summarize it in uh, a few sentences? Uh, it's not really one you can summarize, I think. I, this is a hugely important case if you're dealing with Iraqi asylum cases, but it's of absolutely no interest to you at all if you're not. Um, no, it, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think it's probably not use of, not good use of time for us to, to go through it in detail. One of the things that jumped out, um, at me though was that the, um, this confirms that flights have restarted to the Kurdish area in the north of Iraq, um, which kind of, um, destroys one of the arguments that was being used in Iraqi asylum case on behalf of, of Kurds. Um, but yeah, it, it's super detailed. There's a lot of expert evidence here. It's a really detailed headnote. I mean, the headnote's virtually a determination in its own right. Um, so take a close look at this if you are dealing with any relevant cases. Yeah, and just to add that uh, Chris Cole from Parker Road's uh, Hikmat, who was involved in this case, he's written a, a comment underneath our post on free movement, which draws out a few of the points that he thought were of interest. So that might be helpful for people who are interested to look to look at. Again, I want to read out what he says, but it's on the site. Um, and he also says that they are appealing that decision because apparently the tribunal got uh, a few things badly wrong. The next asylum case we wanted to talk about was about delays in deciding child asylum applications. The Home Office has been brought to the High Court over this, but has successfully defended its handling of unaccompanied child cases. The judgment is RMK and Secretary of State 2019 EWHC 3573 admin. Colin, again, not worth dwelling on this too much because the Home Office won, uh, but did you think it was a fair decision, an interesting decision? It's a surprising decision because I, I think anybody who's been dealing with these cases realizes that um, there are some really, really serious delays, basically, um, in, in child asylum claims. And, you know, if any asylum claim, you'd hope that a child claim would be cited as promptly as possible because it, it really matters um, to, to, to a kid. And it, it sort of helps them get on with their lives and settle down if they're going to be allowed to stay or it just sort of wastes some crucial years for them if, if they're not. So, no, it's a really disappointing outcome. I'd be surprised if this isn't under appeal. Um, I, I, I don't know whether it is or not, but I'd be surprised if it's not. Um, so perhaps watch this space. Finally, in the asylum field, there has been an upper tribunal decision on the status of appeals that were decided under the discredited detained fast track system. Detained fast track was found to be unlawful a number of years ago, and 
So there may still be people removed from the UK under that process who can have another appeal, can sort of reopen their case. What this new upper tribunal decision says is that you do have a fresh hearing to reopen the detained fast track case. The Devasilin rules on the status of a previous asylum appeal still apply. So Colin, what's the significance of that, of the Devasilin rules being applicable in these detained fast track cases? Well, it's a good example of the tribunal um, stating the bleeding obvious, I, th- I think, frankly. I don't think anybody really thought this wasn't seriously the case. And um, from previous authorities, we know that, you know, you're going to have to show some unfairness in your case. So it's all very well just saying, oh, well, I, I didn't get a proper chance. But you, you've you got to go beyond that and show that actually there was some evidence that you could have um, gathered or presented, but didn't have a chance to. So, and that would, you know, clearly meet a kind of, um, that, that, that's clearly something that falls within that kind of Devasilan, um, conception of, of previous appeals where that's the starting point, but it's not necessarily the ending point. And clearly, you know, not having the time because you were detained in the fast track to prepare and present a certain type of evidence, whether it's an expert report or it's corroborating evidence of some sort from other witnesses or whatever it is. Um, it's clearly going to be a good reason to go behind what the original judge um, found. Charlie Goods, the citation for that case, in case anyone does want to cite the bleeding obvious, is RMW and Secretary of State Fast Track Appeal, Devasilin Guidelines, 2019 UKUT 411 IAC. Let's then turn to economic migration, and there has been a statement of changes to the immigration rules, which makes adjustments to the exceptional talent visa route. Exceptional talent has been rebranded, first of all, in the statement of changes. It's now called Global Talent. And the Big question with the, I suppose, confusion of the rebrand is, has the route been substantively changed at all in the course of the rebrand? And I think our answer is no, not really. Uh, Nat has taken a close look and she reckons for people in the digital technology and arts and culture subcategories, there are basically no changes except a couple of tweaks to terminology. And then for people applying in the other subcategories, the route has been expanded. So if you are looking for a global talent visa in the fields of science, medicine, engineering, or humanities, there's now an extra pathway, basically a third fast track pathway. Uh, and It's for researchers who are employed using a UK research grant worth uh, £30,000 or more. Uh, details as ever on the website, but basically making it a bit easier for the university research sector to sponsor people. Uh, although, of course, Colin, it's going to be much harder overall because of Brexit and the end of free movement. Yeah, and it, it, this isn't much consolation if you're an EU national who wants to come to the UK after the end of this year, because um, you know these are quite difficult rules to to satisfy. And um, previously, you'd have been able to come in very easily with um, you know no visa at all and with full pension transferable rights and and so on and so forth. But um, not in future. Um, just picking up on one thing, um, CJ, I think you did miss out one important change for um, the existing routes, which is the um, increase in the size of the CV that you're allowed to submit. And um, I think Nath says that that's increased from two sides to three sides of A4. Yeah, not draining people in petty detail whatsoever. Um, looking ahead to the sort of immigration policy uh, in, in economic immigration, we've also had the Migration Advisory Committee report on the government's proposals for a points-based immigration system. A lot of ink has been spilled on this subject, but the takeaway from the MAC report is that it is pretty lukewarm on the idea. They basically say this shouldn't get in the way of employers being able to sponsor people for work visas as they can now. 
But if the government is really so keen on this points-based wrapper or slogan or whatever, then they could bring in a points element to exceptional talent visas, which seems sensible enough. But the government is obviously really gung-ho with being able to say that there's something points-based coming in across the board. So I don't know. The indication to me seemed to be that they will not really go for this sort of nuanced approach that the Mac suggests, and they may be more inclined to put in a sort of meaningless points calculation for a much wider variety of visas than just exceptional talent. But that's basically speculation entirely, because we don't really know at this point. Uh, do you have any speculation, Colin, to throw in the mix? No, it's, it's quite hard to get excited about this stuff, because... Um... You know, it's quite funny reading the the Mac reports. I mean, it's kind of there's a, a rather kind of resigned, world weary kind of tone to the whole thing. I I picked up, or possibly it was just, you know, me who um, <laughs> was feeling that. Um, but I, I think they, they, the Mac seems to have made the mistake of of taking the government seriously in uh, about this whole points based malarkey. And um, you know, it is actually just a slogan. Um, the the latest gossip and it's you know it's all this kind of immigration policy by by press release stuff is that there'd be some sort of um employer-led scheme very similar to tier two but there might be some sort of alternative way of um making up uh you getting your visa if you don't quite meet the salary threshold or or, or something like that and it's like and it's it's just about barely enough to be able to say it's kind of there's some sort of points element to it um but what the mac had had, had made the mistake of saying is it is all thinking is that um they're actually serious about having some sort of serious points based route or visa or something which it sounds like actually the government isn't that interested in turning to brexit and specifically the eu settlement scheme for people who want to stay here after the 31st of december this year uh, as you mentioned at the outset, Colin, there is now a formal right of appeal against refusal of settled status or an offer of pre-settled status when the person thinks they should get the full settled status. This right of appeal, I think, only applies to applications that are lodged after the 31st of January 2020. But, I mean, as far as I know, you can apply to the scheme multiple times. And so people who want to appeal, I think, could always reapply and then appeal the new refusal. The regulations are the Immigration Citizens Rights Appeals EU Exit Regulations 2020, SI 2020, number 16. All that said, Colin, I mean, it's, it's good news that people have rights, but people aren't really being refused under the settlement scheme so far, are they? No, what, what we are seeing is um, a lot of people are getting pre-settled status instead of settled status, and we're not quite sure whether you know what they were entitled to because the Home Office isn't um, saying what they asked for in the first place. Um, I, this right of appeal, it's, it's important and it's useful for some people, but quite a narrow group of people. Um, if somebody is refused settled status or they get pre-settled status instead of settled status, the vast majority of people would be better off making a new free application and just sending in further and better evidence. Where the appeal will be important is if they don't have that evidence, if they need witnesses to confirm that they're here because the Home Office isn't interested in witnesses, whereas judges are, or if they get refused on criminality grounds. And we've only seen a handful of refusals so far. Um, so, you know, this is quite a narrow group of people who who this benefits, but it's it's an important right. Absolutely. And uh, it might be that they're sitting on a whole bunch of refusals that, that will come down later on top of the sort of half a dozen that, that they have yeah, so been, far. That's right. And there's been a growing backlog. So um, although the, the number of refusals is low, it could be, I mean, not necessarily, but it could be that um, the Home Office is just kind of sitting in those cases on uh, sitting on those cases instead of refusing them. We don't we just don't really know yet. 
Immigration detention then, and a case brought to our attention by Mike Poulter at Turpin and Miller. Mike was involved in an unlawful detention claim that went up to the Court of Appeal on the issue of grace periods. Uh, now, grace period is, is a new one on me, but what Mike explains is that when a judge finds that someone's detention is in breach of the Hardyal Singh principles, it doesn't mean that the detention is unlawful from that moment on straight away. The Home Office gets a grace period to basically put their house in order before releasing the person. They might need to sort out bail accommodation suitable for someone who presents some risks in public, for example. And what this case did was to look at the law on how long these grace periods could be. Uh, in the past, they, the Home Office has been allowed up to a month, but the case then went on to say that in this particular set of facts, uh, five weeks would have been acceptable. So that's an increase in a week in the sort of maximum length of a grace period. Although, of course, it's it's not a hard, hard and fast rule, and it's all about what's reasonable, but perhaps some reason to think that maybe these, these grace periods are creeping up in terms of length, um, and people are, as a result, staying in detention for longer. The citation then are AC Algeria and Secretary of State 2020 WCA Civ 36. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a very disappointing decision again. This one and it, the idea that you're that they're allowed to detain for a further five weeks, um, particularly on the facts of this case where the Home Office um, already had noticed the person should have been released because he'd been granted conditional bail some months previously by an immigration judge. They've just done nothing essentially, and then and then the courts are willing to give an extra five weeks. Um, which is actually a really substantial period of detention. You know that that would be a fairly serious prison sentence for a lot of people. Um, so it, it's quite surprising and, and, and very disappointing that um, they're not um, the courts aren't forcing the Home Office to take this a bit more seriously and get its act together and, and do these things more quickly. Mike um, points to you know, the judgment um, being quite helpful in in some respects um, in, ter- in terms of sort of talking the talk, but you know, the, the actual walking the walk on this one is, is a five-week grace period, which is very substantial. We'll give a quick mention then to another detention case. This one rejects a challenge to the healthcare system for immigration detainees that are held in prisons. Mr. Justice Superstone essentially agrees with the Home Office that prisons and detention centres are so different that you don't need to provide comparable health care in the two settings, even though the people might be held under identical immigration powers. So that's disappointing. Uh, the citation, MR Pakistan and another, and Secretary of State for Justice 2019 EWHC 3567 admin. Anything to comment on that one, Carl? No, I mean, there, there are a substantial number of um, immigration detainees held in prisons. Uh, you know, given that the Home Office says it's interested in detainee welfare, given the two shore reports and so on, you'd hope that they'd be taking this a bit more seriously, but but they're not, basically. Let's move then to paragraph 3225 cases. So this is that fairly big group of people who've been refused settlement in the UK on tier one general visas because they reported much higher earnings to the Home Office than they did to HMRC for tax purposes. Now, some such people have been blaming their accountants for the mistake. They forgot to carry the one or whatever it was, whatever it might be. And some tribunal judges have been fairly sympathetic where an accountant comes forward and says, yes, it's all my fault. Don't punish the client for my inability to do their taxes. But the Upper Tribunal has now reported a case saying that you can't just fire off a letter to that effect as an accountant and expect the judge to just accept it and let the whole thing go. Uh, In this case, the accountants appear to have signed someone else's name to the letter, which is obviously uh, somewhat suspicious. 
And as a result, the judgment says that accountants should in future expect to come in person to give live evidence if they are taking the blame for tax discrepancies. The case is Abassi Rule 43, paragraph 3225, Accountants Evidence 2020 UKUT 27 IAC. What did you think of that, Colin? Yeah, good luck getting an accountant to come to the tribunal. It's just not going to happen. Um, I know there's gonna, we're going to have to find some sort of alternative where the accountants do accept that they've done wrong. Um, there's no way they're going to physically come. Um, there might have to be multiple bits of correspondence or God knows what, but um, sort of physical attendance is, is just unrealistic. Fair enough. Uh, also on 3225 cases, there is new Home Office guidance on refusing settlements uh, in, in these circumstances we've been talking about. Uh, this is in addition to guidance published in October 2019 about false representations, and, and that seemed pretty squarely aimed at these tax discrepancy cases. But this new document is even more specific. It's to be used in all applications where there were earning discrepancies, even if those were declared in previous extension applications. So very important to read if you have such a case. The document is called False Representations, Tier 1 General Earnings Concerns, and it is dated 16 January 2020. Uh, Another tribunal case to discuss, uh, this one on Article 3, medical cases, so where migrants are very seriously ill and argue that removing them to a country where they can't be properly treated would breach their human rights. In this case, the man involved is wheelchair-bound from a stroke and suffers from complicated mental health issues. The issue in the case was about whether the Home Office has to proactively investigate the availability of treatment in the country of return when an Article 3 issue is raised, or whether that duty only arises when the person has discharged their burden of proof and successfully established that there is a real risk of an Article 3 breach. So when does the Home Office have to investigate. Uh, The case broadly comes down on the side of the Home Office. There's no need to investigate just because someone has come along with an Article 3 claim. Uh, They have to have sort of established the real risk and and then the investigative duty arises. The citation AXB Article 3 Health Obligation Suicide Jamaica 2019 UKUT 397 IAC. To wrap up the podcast then, we have some procedural cases and the first is a judgment from the Upper Tribunal. I think one of those ones where they just give out about things uh, in in their lives. Ejiogu Cart Cases 2019 UKUT 395 and counsel for the appellant gets a roasting in this one with President Lane writing, it is not easy to see why he advanced the judicial review grounds that he did nor why in discharge of his duty of candidness he did not also cite the many authorities against him. So that's one complaint. Uh, another complaint is about the High Court being too ready to grant permission to appeal in these card cases. So the poor old upper tribunal judges are, are hard done by. Um, anything of substance from that case, Colin? Not really. I, I think it, we, we should say, I think it was um, different counsel at the hearing by that time. So it was um, counsel who drafted the grounds, I think, who were, were getting criticised in this case. Um, and yeah, we've seen a few of these um, determinations where one gets the suspicion the upper tribunal is getting a bit fed up of um, these these high court cart cases. Um, I was quite interested by um, what our author Bilal Shabir said at the end about this just not happening in Scotland because um, the equivalent, the court of session actually holds a hearing and these cases don't get back to the upper tribunal therefore um whereas in england and wales that safeguard isn't there and these cases are just being sort of sent back willy-nilly essentially 
Yeah, it was an interesting point to to note the difference between the jurisdictions. But we shall leave that for the comparative lawyers for now and talk about another case about uh, on procedure. This is about abandonment of appeals and giving notice under Section 104 of the Nationality Immigration and Asylum Act 2002. Uh, so this is the situation where your client might have been granted leave following an appeal, but you want to carry on with the appeal anyway, uh, in the hope of getting a, a better status, a, a stronger status than the one that was granted. The Upper Tribunal has decided a few different points about the nature of this Section 104 notice. Uh, it says that once given, the notice retrospectively causes the appeal to have been pending throughout. And it also says that the practice directions that purport to relate to Section 104 notice are so out of date that they can just be ignored. The citation there, MSU Section 104 4B Notices, Bangladesh, 2019 UK UT 412 IAC. Yeah, just a reminder, really, that it's really important to lodge these notices because it's clearly it hasn't been happening in some cases. And um, you know, it, it's quite an easy oversight for a lawyer to make, but it's 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 a bad one to make. Um, if, if your client is granted leave during an appeal, you've got to give one of these notices. And happily, the tribunal here is saying it can be done retrospectively, but you shouldn't rely on the tribunal agreeing to that. Um, you know, it's, it's much better to remember to do it in the first place. The next case is also about Section 104, this time about the status of an appeal that has been reopened by means of judicial review. So the finding here is that a case becomes finally determined when permission to appeal is refused, but where refusal of permission to appeal has been quashed by judicial review, the appeal becomes pending again, which I assume has some important practical consequences somewhere. Uh, The citation is NIAS NIAA. 2002 section 104 pending appeal 2019 uk ut 399 iac yeah it's 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 interesting example of um you know basically reaching entirely the opposite conclusion um to the previous case we were looking at um the the msu case um and one gets the feeling that um the tribunal felt it had to reach that um outcome that decision because otherwise the home office would have unlawfully removed somebody and that would never do um, so there's a certain amount of um, sort of working backwards from that that conclusion, perhaps, in this case. Perish the thought. Uh, the final case for this episode is, again, on procedure, but specifically on vulnerable adults in the tribunal. There are several points in the headnote, uh, including, quote, the fact that a judicial fact finder decides to treat an appellant or witness as a vulnerable adult does not mean that any adverse credibility finding in respect to that person is thereby to be regarded as inherently problematic and thus open to challenge and appeal, end quote. Uh, I'll check Colin in a sec whether you want to comment on this, but just to give the citation, it is SB Vulnerable Adults Credibility Ghana, 2019 UKUT 398 IAC. Yeah, it's another one of those cases where we've got pretty much statements of the the obvious. So um, not a particularly um, profound or important decision, but you know, it, it's it's a it's a useful restatement, I suppose, of, of of basic principles. Okay, well, that wraps up this month, and we hope that's been helpful. And we'll be back next month. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.